0: Welcome to Lighting Our Way, a podcast of Uganda Christian University's standard newspaper. Here, we hear stories of self reflection, removing the log in our eyes so that we may see the light and transform our world.
1: Uh, Welcome to our podcast, Lighting Our Way. And today, with us, we have uh, Professor uh, Maxine Ankara, the founder and director of the Ankara Foundation. She shares about some of her life experiences. It's good to have you, Professor. Yes, you can begin by telling us about yourself.
0: Well, uh, first and foremost, as far as I'm aware, I may be the sole you uh, African-American, Ugandan, today, Many of our folk over the several years, and I have been here since 1974, never moving out, have recently, within the last decade, and very specifically within the last four years of COVID-19, have left going back home to America, South America. So I came here at that time, 1974, with my husband and two children. At that time we were coming from Geneva, Switzerland, where he had worked with the World Council of Churches and I in different capacities. And uh, we came in during the time of Idi Amin, coming to Bishop Tucker Theological College where he had been invited to teach and not only at the college, but across the whole of the nation for development after Idi Amin. And that was what brought us from Geneva. We had every intention of being here for three years and then we stayed for another three years. (laughs) And the rest, as they say, is history. My husband unfortunately passed away in 2015. And after some consideration, I decided to stay. The children had been put in boarding school. And thereafter, one went to America, the other went to Geneva, Switzerland, where she now is with the World Health Organization. The son is with the Environmental Protection Agency in Washington, D.C. And to that extent, I'm holding the fort alone.
1: As you said, you are an African-American. Which part of the United States do you come from?
0: I'm uh, from North Carolina, and uh, at a very early age, I became interested in uh, Africa, particularly reading of the history and what was going on in the Mau Mau in Kenya, and then in South Africa, reading Cry the Beloved country, etc. And so I decided to go on first getting a degree in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, Clark College to what was called the Hartford Seminary Foundation, because there they were training people to be missionaries all over the world. I met people all over the world. And so being my second year at seminary, that is, I already had my first degree, went there to study both theology and social work combined degrees. I was responsible for integrating the f- new students, my second year, and in walked a handsome <laughs> a handsome young man from Ghana. And so I met then and there, Mr. Kojo Ankra. And we, after two years married, came to Ghana in 62. From Ghana, we worked with the, uh, what is it, the Ghana Christian Council. From there, that Ghanaian took me out of Ghana into Kenya, and from Kenya to Geneva, and from Geneva to Kampala. And that's who, that's, so in actual fact, I'm Ghanaian uh, by marriage, I'm Ugandan by now, nationality,
1: American, by birth. That, that, that's quite interesting. Uh, Africa had the common experience of seeing white missionaries from the UK, France, among others, but not African American. How did you set out to be a missionary yourself?
0: When I was uh, in my first year at a university, Shaw University in North Carolina, was the time in which Joe, Joe Mo Kenyatta and the Mama was struggling for their independence in, uh, away from the British. But earlier in life, because we had uh, native missionaries, they call themselves missionaries and missionaries, in the black church, early, surely by the time I was 15, 16, we had a very dynamic woman missionary. I can remember her right now preaching. And I decided, eh, I'd like to be like that. So by the time I was 16, 17, my sight was to become a missionary. And then when I went to college, by the time I was 18, 19, and heard about the Mau Mau, the two came together. So from the time I was 17 to the time I was 19, I decided that I would go to Africa. I would be a missionary, and specifically, I would help the South Africans who were struggling under apartheid. And so my decision was a very early decision, and there was no diverting from it. And so by the time I met my husband in '58, I was already my second and third degrees en route to, to Africa, never of course expecting to be in uganda
1: as an african-american from a slave background in north carolina which was one of the slave positioning states during the lincolnian conflict how did these ties influence your life
0: let me assure you that i have a very vivid picture of being black We call ourselves now Negroes, African-Americans, what have you. Colored was the name, Negro, colored, black. Those were the words used to describe who we were. Actually, I am a great-granddaughter of slaves. I'm of the age that my parents knew their parents who had been slaves. When I grew up, I grew up in the South in the United States, in North Carolina, and at the time of my teenage being in school, primary, secondary, uh, very vivid, working for whites in the tobacco fields, picking cotton for school fees and all the rest, going in the summer to the beach, of which every aspect of my life was segregated. Whites would not be happy to see a black person come to worship God, the same Jesus, in their places. Going into shops, I recall that I could not put clothes on. I have to see them, but I couldn't put them on because I was black. There were no people like me working in the shops, no jobs available that were not at the very lowest, could not live in certain parts of the town, could not walk in. And one of the sad things about my life today, and I'm 88, is exactly the same, that blacks are limited in almost every aspect of their lives. In the state from which I come, blacks cannot literally own substantive land. Everyone, one of the reasons I was late this morning was sending the men to the farm, check on this, check every Uganda, if he wishes, can have a piece of land. We and I, not then and not now. So when you ask me what was it like growing up, it's like today. And therefore, even today, they are trying to prevent African Americans from voting in many of the southern, in many of the states, And then we could not vote. We could not run for office. We could not hold office with exception of as it emerged in the black community to serve blacks. And therefore the church was the central institution apart from school. And even then we couldn't go to white churches. We couldn't go to white schools. Even in today you go, but sometimes you are not welcomed. So much has changed, but much has not changed.
1: On the contrary, today, many young Africans are desperate to move to North Carolina in the U.S. in search for a better life. You from that background can give us your perspective about this hopelessness among the young people that leads them to abandon their spaces and aim for the U.S., which they refer to as uh, the dreamland.
0: Yesterday, I was talking with a Ugandan who has gone for about 10 years, knew him when he was in his 30s. He finished, he had a very promising job in an international organization in Uganda, decided that the green card in America was his life's desire. He packs up his old family and he goes there. He opens up a little shop. And what begins to happen? He begins to be a black man. The, the limitations. You can have this, but you can't have this. You can set up this business, but then these are the restrictions. So while the same Ugandan is in a slum area, i.e. a black community, he sees the others, the Koreans, even, I bet you, the Afghanistan, anybody but a black man prospering. And the black African Africans, as well as the We, the African-American, are kept pretty much in what is called a ghetto. Only the very few who operate again within the black community prosper. So that's already, you're limited, you're in this confound. But then you may become a president of a university, you may become a barber, you can be a hairdresser, you can be a teacher, preacher. The preachers are most likely to be the most prosperous because they hold out a hope In God. But for the black American, that's why the man George Floyd was killed by the police. And since that time, month after month, black men are still killed. Black people are still at the very bottom. And so, this dream that America is the land of promise, if you are not African American, if you're not African, if you're not black but the rest of it is highly, uh, highly dreamland. But my being in Africa was not an escape. Mine was a call, and God still calls us to our roots because we are blacks, the very first humankind. God started mankind as black African, he started the whole human existence in Africa and that is the message that we've got to get across and secondly there are 250 million African descendants in Brazil and South America alone, 250 million because they were taken as slaves and once they're there They are at the bottom. We are at the bottom wherever we are in the world. But not because they don't expect the lie that life is better elsewhere. It isn't.
1: Why why do you think the line has been sharply drawn for the African or for the black compared to the rest? Why is survival a little bit harder for the African? Could there be an ideological essence behind it?
0: Let me tell you that if I thought I had an answer, if I even claimed to be answering a question, it would simply be my opinion, it would be speculation. My, My opinion takes me to the heart of my faith of a God. My husband's understanding of God before the missionaries ever came has been accepted in my own thinking that long, if the black man, the black person, according to modern DNA science, is the first man, then God made the first man on the African soil. If you follow the African history in terms of his uh, evolving as a people, if you look at modern spirituality, you will find that there is a greatest inclination to accept not a God, the Indians have more gods than they have people, but the God who is uh, witnessed by Jesus Christ, that God, you will find that that spirituality is most present among the African. Africans, no matter what the situation, you will never find a total atheistic black man. In our own culture, you say, that man may be getting drunk, trying to get home drunk, but he's, oh God. And then right now, many people have observed, how do you explain that when the Europeans and especially whites of America expected Africans to die in the streets like flies by COVID, even in the last days and hours, they are saying in Africa, you can forget the pandemic is over. We're in an epidemic, but not the uncontrollable deaths. And until now, how many people... Do you know who has died of COVID? So somewhere or another, there seems to be an acknowledgement of God that is at enmity with Satan. Because when he fell to the earth, he fell at the time, he would have fell in Africa, Sana'a, and then Egypt, etc. But there has never been an acquiescence to Satan that is wholesale. You go to the Asian race and the European race today. Where is God as God and God as the Father of Jesus Christ? Question. Yeah. And I do believe that we are at war in a spiritual way that is only explained by the fact that the black man may be because of the suffering. So when we go to the Scripture, the Bible, the Christian Bible. We say that God is a God of the poor. Now, if we were as rich as everybody else, it is very probable that sports would become our God, money would become our God, uh, the sciences. But no matter how, and on the third hand, it may well be that when everything of the earth is given to you, you have no need of God. I don't know, but these are my ideas. And that's why I think that we are a victim. We don't fight, we don't war against flesh and blood. But the Bible says with against powers and principalities. And that is what I think is happening. That the black man has never accepted that this life is all. And therefore I don't despise what's called the African traditional religion. Because God knows how he wants to speak to every man. And the black man has never dismissed Africa. I mean, got out of his mist.
1: Okay, t- tell us about your experience coming to Africa. What, what Africa did you find when I first arrived?
0: So, when I first arrived in 1962, I went to Ghana, and uh, because that's where my husband came from, and we stayed there from '62 six to six so four years because I already at that time had a head I was an educated woman. I mean educated in the sense of two master's degrees and therefore, like everybody else, I expect to do do something to be somebody, only to meet my mother-in-law <laughs> and to see the Ghanaian woman, my mother-in-law, could not read nor write, but what she did, she came out of a uh, Atlantic Ocean coastal town, Annamabu. And there, many women dried the fish, herons and other fish. And then they take the fish from Annamabu to Kumasi, the next big town. She sold the fish with all the figures in her head. How many fish, how many dried, the money. And she sold it to uh, uh, other women. And with that money, my mother-in-law bought materials for the African dress. And she went from there to Cape Coast, coming closer to home. She sold it to other market women. And those market women then took it. And (laughs) so my mother was in an economic loop where she was totally self-dependent. She did not need to be dependent on a husband. He could not tell her where to come and where to go, their arrangement was that my mother-in-law was the chain, the link. My husband descended from his mother. I went into a place where women, unlike the racism of America, were somebody, and it changed my whole outlook on who I should be. That was the initial So then, by the time I left from there and went to Kenya, I saw the East Africans were under the feet of men. (laughs) But I had married a man matriarchal, and therefore respected what I could do. So he said, if you want to do this, you do it. The money we put in one bank account, I could draw, he could draw. So I drew and he drew. So there was never any putting me down, that expression. That was the original until then. I went abroad. I was working in international organization while he was with the World Council of Churches. And I decided that the African woman, the black woman, was settling for tokens, and then she could be much more than what she was. Even though Ghana had a good experience, East African women were kneeling when we got here. A man, you know, your son, if I had walked in, I should get on my knees. (laughs) That was my initial experience coming into Uganda. And so then I had to, I am the promoter of Action for Development. That was the first woman's liberation organization in this country, because I had that combination of being black, fighting for my rights, Being a Ghanaian association, women have a right, (laughs) and the rest is history.
1: (laughs) You can also tell us about the actual work that you and your husband had uh, set yourselves to do, and you could as well comment on the achievements in it.
0: My husband had come here as the World Council of Churches Africa Secretary. Uh, He has never been a clergyman, though he went to America to become a clergyman. Once he got there, he felt that his should be a life of service, not one of the pulpit, not the robe and all of that. So he and I first did social science degrees, then he and I did masters of social work, and then he and I did theological master's degree he went on to do another degree by in administration by the way and this is the promise of africa my husband went to america and this is the promise of america and our need for change of education here he had a primary school certificate <laughs> and the university in the middle of america said we'll, we'll give you one term in we were a semester, you if you can make it the first semester, you can stay. So what my husband said he did, he ate the boots, <laughs> he wasn't playing the guitar, he was looking for the girls. he was eating day and night. so the first semester he passed stay the second semester, so from a primary school certificate. Ten grades, ten years rather, he left and died with four degrees, graduate degrees. So on my side, I had come from this background of racism. And I, my parents said, and my society said, no matter how they treat you, it was always in relation to being treated by whites, you can be somebody and so you're beautiful, black is beautiful. Maybe you've heard that expression in the past. Said, uh uh-uh, uh, you can be somebody. So then, when I got to Africa, this is when I discovered that indeed Africans can be somebody. Because everything that we, you need is here, as long as you don't despise it. And when I got that message at a young age, I can be somebody. When I came to Africa, I didn't despise myself. I think that many Africans today still despise themselves. They have believed that black is bad, it's no use. So therefore, when we got here, opportunities of a thousand types, not here alone, but let's just concentrate now on Uganda. So when, by the time we got here, my husband had been the Africa secretary. I had founded social work in the government for the government of Kenya founded women's organizations, I had written, I traveled much of the world, and therefore was able, one, I mentioned, emphasizing and literally starting the women's movement in Uganda. That was the action for development. Then I went to, first, McEnery, and I began to teach development social work. And in that, I taught management. It's called SWASA, Social Work and Social Administration. And therefore, I got to know many of your permanent secretaries and what have you today. When Museveni came to power, I was the one who called him through Action for Development to address women. So then when we had the problem of HIV and AIDS, I had already had people in our household with AIDS, I knew it wasn't... You know, we were so afraid anybody with AIDS is going to die, going to touch it, and what have you. No. And so I did the first national survey on HIV and AIDS and therefore got to be known through the World Health Organization and therefore worked on that one. Came back to McHittery and what happened was that uh, they were... Kojo was about to retire and Kojo and I said, Okay... You know, we have what's called these health centers one to four. And when I was doing HIV as a national survey, I discovered that you were not paying attention to the health centers one, two, and three. And that if anything were to happen for health, you wouldn't be. So Kojo and I began to buy what here is 15 acres of land, 17 buildings, five acres of just trees. And why? because there was need for greater attention at the higher level, not just doctors, but clinical officers. That is when we began to face a new kind of Uganda, but an old kind of Africa. And that is that is called the elites. That once I have it, and this is why many young Africans try to get out of the country, you're trying to find a salvation, you're trying to, you see your own experience is being a closed door. That if you're not a son of a big man, your parents don't have money, you have no hope. As long as you stay in Uganda, whether it's Ghana, Nigeria, so the, the dream is if I can only get out of Africa, life will be so much better. And so therein, we said, this Ankhra Foundation We'll try to give a different message. And that is why my husband went the direction of developing a program called Development Studies. What is he saying? That unless you develop your own through study, there's no future. And that is at seminary, we learned And Kojo's, uh, his alma mater, Goshen College, Indianapolis, Indiana, was culture for service that if you do not serve, no matter the level of education, you are not assisting mankind. So Kojo's background and mine came together in the Ankara Foundation, which now has also the Ankara Foundation think tank, uh, along with our association with UCU. And what are we trying to say? That there is no Christianity Without service, no matter how eloquent the speaker, how, may, how it makes you feel, if you don't, if your fellow man, your fellow Christian, is not better off because he has entered your life space, you've made no Christian, no commitment. That Christ is about development. That you cannot leave the poor as he is. God loves the poor. And claim you're a Christian or even an educated Ugandan. And if you despise the text, context in which we put, and that is Africa, and you do nothing to make Africa better, what will you do? You are selfish by rushing out to America, Britain, or whatever, and you'll be disappointed.
1: Finally, as you said earlier, you are holding the fort alone. <laughs> I see now you have gone into a memorandum of understanding with uh, UCU. Uh, tell us something about the new dispensation that you are having with UCU and uh, the Ankara Foundation. Your dreams, your dreams now.
0: And so, Koju and I had dreamt, as I said, that education in Africa had to be strengthened more science. And so in addition to knowing that the clinical officers needed a stronger background, but Uganda needed that lower level at the village level of health, we put those two ideas together to create what was called the School of Health and Sciences. And thereafter, as I've just said, we acquired this most beautiful hill And we built from nothing with that goal of strengthening science. With the message out of UCU that UCU was going to open up a medical school. And with communications that indeed we could come together. We were asking for a tertiary institution. We were open to discussions about leasing this whole establishment for 10 years in which UCU would use it as it chose but as of this month February the 1st UCU has taken possession in a lease arrangement for taking this here in the sense of a, a a dynamic fluid alive relationship I repeat in June of 20 21, we signed a 10-year MOU with the Anker Foundation think tank. Now, the Anker Foundation is a physical property of 30, 15 acres. All the buildings, everything has been used. We were open for 20 years, never closed until COVID. So now with the think tank, I am coming in, first not in the think tank, but in UCU. I was I became a professor in 1992 at uh, Makerere University, having headed even Swassa. And uh, here, I have been promoted. I'm a so-called a visiting professor, which gives me the freedom, not so much concerned with just teaching a course but I am uh, asked to develop two programs. One is the Africa spirituality, in which I've been talking about what what do we mean about our God, our worship, etc. And then the other is African African diaspora connections. And my uh, end in the spirituality is strengthening what the bishop uh, uh, Bishop Tucker theological that spiritual component. And for the Africa-Diaspora Connections, African Studies. Because my argument is that if indeed there isn't a change in the mindset of Africans, then we go on despising ourselves. We have nothing to offer because we have no confidence and we stay at the bottom. But if, if today, suddenly, your sons, you know that I can be somebody. I am somebody, if my mind changes of who I am, then I will give something back to Africa. And sure enough, Africa will change. So that is where we are. I will be teaching and directing and developing two-pronged academic pursuits. One is African spirituality, and the other is African studies.
1: If you have uh, observed the nutrients in the African church, especially in Uganda, there are new directions of person-centeredness, tendencies of derogating African essence, and then there is preaching on the side streets without depth, for instance, of the theological background. Um, What do you have to say about that? Uh, There can be no Christianity,
0: in my view, without a clear sense of the indwelling God through the Holy Spirit. Right now, if you come here in a car, you know there's a place called Prayer Mountain and beside that there's a place called MTN Television. <laughs> when we walked from Bishop Tucker, we were there at the first house at the old gate. We stayed there 18 years and uh, we then came here, we begun to build. And the citizens down in Mokono, for five years after we opened, refused to come up. Why? Because at the MTN Towers was the god Mokono. He was either God Mokono or he was the god of Gulu. You didn't know that? Mm-hmm. That was the that was the that was exactly the spot of the worshipping By the time we cut our way through the bush and explored this ground, we found all of the corns that over the years had been pushed to their God. And there were recent splinters where the fire was burned. Now guess what it is now? It is Prayer Mountain. God is at war with Satan, and Satan is at war with God And he comes in many guises, sometimes independent, like many of our big preachers. Once I become a big preacher, everybody bows to me. other thing is happening. The Holy Spirit may start in this church. We start very humble, but the more the Lord blesses, the bigger I become, the more people bow. And that's all you're describing. Satan gets the upper hand, and I become God, whatever you say. I become God. The other day, so you and your wife begins to fight over the church. Now, where is Christ? And I repeat, unless the Holy Spirit is elevated and Christ is three persons, and you decide you will be God and forget Jesus who died, and the Holy Spirit don't he's interfering with my life. Then you do whatever you want. So I am not saying, let me be serious. I am very serious. That when you see these kinds of trends and tendencies, then we need to be going back to the cross. Christ died. We need to go back to the suffering of the Spirit of God, who wants us to be holy people, and not rich, nor proper. None of this. And so, I think that there can be sincerity. I can be on the streets preaching for the next 20 minutes, 20 hours, 20 days. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't uh, have an influence and change people because of my life, if I don't give back what God is giving me, all of this is flesh.
1: As a a person who has been uh, committed to family, how best can we tackle the scenarios of family disintegration that often lead to Cases like, let's say, single parenthood.
0: Uh, I think it's a myth to believe that families are not holding together. Uh, People are living apart. Uh, Many, many of the families, well, how many people come and live in Kampala in relation to a fast-growing population? At the moment, 25% of Ugandans are 50 and above, 75% are 25 and below. (laughs) It is an extremely small population, meaning that the 25% are having so many dependents that sooner or later it is for survival in the best sense, food, shelter, education, etc that somebody has to go away. What is critical is the foundation that was laid. If mother, father have examples, if they teach, if they ensure that their children understand about this relations with God, then children can go wherever. They never go away from the foundational teaching. Now, if indeed you are a drunkard, if you, the father, and your son sees you with another girlfriend, young girls, women, whatever you, you have put in a seed of dissolution of the family. But if you have been upright, they've seen an example of giving, caring, loving, nurturing. They can go anywhere in the world, but they are there. The reason I was not dressed when you arrived, I was almost an hour on the phone with my, what is it? My son is fifty seven years of age. They are calling me now when COVID came. We had closed the business for twenty years, never closed. Those children have decided, okay, if mama they tried to get especially the last lockdown, they took me to America and Geneva for three months. And if any of you had died, you gonna forget. Because they weren't going to let their mama come back here. But the moment there was no major deaths and what have you, they put me back on the plane. And month after month, they not only support me, but the people who surround me, support me, and the little bit of farm that we have, and so on. point I'm making is that families aren't falling apart because the children grew up. The foundations were never firmly laid in the first place, particularly when men, say my African culture allows me to have two, three wives and 15 or so children who never knew their father because he was busy moving from woman to woman, drinking, using all of his money, even if he's a permanent secretary, to be a big man. He's self-centered. It's the foundation, sir. If the foundation is not one Christian, solidly laid for respect, especially of sons, it's gone case. So Africa is no better. And in America, out of every two marriages, one falls apart. <laughs> in Africa, you still are family-centered. Yesterday, I was asking someone, how come you people, every time you turn around, somebody is rushed off to a funeral? And I says, I think you're afraid of spirits. The lady says, no, we are very close as people we are. So there's so much that is preserved. And every bit of it is still being reserved. Preserved depends on the foundation laid from the beginning, in my view.
1: Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you so much. This has been your podcast, Lighting Our Way, with Professor Maxine Ankara. And I have been your host, Kefa Senoga. Till next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope
0: you have been inspired by the wisdom of self-reflection. Please find us on www.standard.ucu.su.ug and share with others this message that lights our way.